Have you ever been on a cave or mine tour before? Yeah? If you have, there's likely a point where the tour guide asked you to turn off your headlight or the flashlights or all the other lights in the area you were standing. And at that moment when the last light went out, you stood in the absolute absence of light. You probably realized just how much you had taken light for granted in that moment. Light and darkness could not be any more opposite. For years, we lived in western South Dakota, and uh, during that time, we would often go explore caves there. And these weren't tourist caves. These were just caves out in the middle of the mountains, in canyons and valleys. And uh, they were small caves sometimes, and so small that you could stand right next to the openings of these caves and not even realize they were there, just little holes that would disappear into the ground. And so obviously, this isn't a tourist cave, so there's no one there to um, show you the way, provide you with a safe journey. So you've got to bring your own stuff for this, right? So that meant water, food, clothing, maybe some climbing gear to ascend or descend. But especially, you need to bring light, right? And uh, when you're going into a cave and there's no one else there to pull you out, you don't bring just one light. You bring a backup, and you bring a backup for the backup, and then you bring batteries for the backup. Because without that light, what starts as an adventure turns into a rather hopeless scenario, rather a death, death trap maybe. Because without light, you can't even feel your way out of the cave. One misplaced step will find you uh, in peril. Without light, in the same way, without the light of God, without the light of Christ, our steps are lost. We need him to direct our steps, to keep us from falling, to bring us life. So let's look at the passage today. If anybody needs a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we'll start with. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, who defines the standard for human morality? Who gets to say what is wrong and what is ultimately right? Do we as people groups or maybe societies or governments, do we get to decide? Maybe morality is just a set of social norms that kind of evolves and transitions over time as culture and technology changes. Or, alternatively, 
Is there a moral standard that transcends us as humans? To put it another way, is morality fixed and determined by something outside of us? If we believe that God is the creator of everyone and everything, then we must acknowledge that it is God who has created and ordained what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is light and what is dark. To state that morality is God-given isn't necessarily a popular idea. In fact, it might get you in hot water. Much of the culture believes that Christians are now the immoral ones, that our time for declaring what is right is past, and now a new progressive morality is needed. The creation account in Genesis, however, tells us that God declared his creation to be good. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 of Genesis read, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. What God has created reflects his character. It is good. And so looking at our verse in 1 John, when it says, God is light, and there's absolutely no darkness in him. What he is saying is that God is perfectly good, pure, righteous, perfectly moral. There's not one stroke of black, not one bit of darkness in himself. He is absolutely good. He is holy. He is not a light. He is the light. We, even as Christians, are not the author and creator of what is good, God is. And so God has not hidden what is good from us. He's given us his word, and he's also given us the person of Jesus to show us what is good. Look at verse 5. He says that this is the message we have heard from Jesus, and that message is God is light. Recall from the previous verse that John stated that he and the apostles heard Jesus, seen Jesus, understood what Jesus did. And they touched him. He was real. They experienced Jesus. They seen his miracles. They seen him die. They seen him rise from the dead. Jesus came and demonstrated that pure light in his coming. It was his miracles, his love, his teaching. And so when we look to Jesus and how he lived, we have a picture of what walking and living in the light means for us as his people. We as Christ followers are called to be children of light, but more than that, we'll look at in a little while, God is light. Let's look at um, verses 6 through 10 here and dig into a little bit more of, of what's going on with the rest of these verses. It reads, verse 6 through 10, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Here John is calling us to walk in the light as God is in the light. Specifically, he contrasts this by saying that we are not to lie. Instead, we are to practice the truth. So what does that mean, to practice the truth? 
usually when we talk about truth, we're, we're talking about facts. This is correct, but what John's really meaning and getting at here is a lot more than just ideas that are right. He's talking about uh, practicing the truth. To practice the truth is more than just knowing what it is. To practice the truth means we do the truth, right? And that's actually, um, the Greek word here is poiumen, translated in the CSB as practicing, um, often translated as do or make. And so we do or we make is the sense of what's going on here. The point is, if we know the truth, but we don't do the truth, we are lying. True knowledge and understanding are linked to action. One way to put it, by one commentator, commentator, Karen Jobes, put it this way. If truth is the reality that Jesus has revealed, then it demands those who believe in him live according to that truth. The truth we are to practice do is what Jesus taught and exemplified for us to do. That's what John means when he says, walk in the light. Larry taught on this quite a bit this morning, digging into it. So I'm not going to go too far here. Um, But just to summarize, and maybe I'll hit some points that Larry didn't hit. See here. We who believe in Christ believe his message, right? Which tells us to imitate him. That means we are to bring light into darkness. And if there's any doubt in your mind that this isn't your job and my job as followers in Christ, take a look at the book of Acts. Uh, Let's look at Acts chapter 13, verses 47 through 48. This is a really cool passage. Acts chapter 13, verses 47 through 48. Paul and Barnabas in this passage are in Antioch, and the Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith. They're in the synagogue. They're preaching, and people are coming. And the next day is what happens is some of the Jews get jealous that there's Gentiles coming to the faith. And so verse 47 and 48 read this in chapter 13. This is Paul's response to that jealousy. For this is what the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Paul is quoting Isaiah 49 here. Isaiah 49 is a prophetic message that points us to Christ. It's really interesting because Paul has taken the words that were applied to Jesus, and Jesus declared that that servant song in Isaiah 49 was Jesus' role to fulfill, but then it became Paul's role as a follower of Jesus to fulfill as well. Just to take a look at it, I'm going to turn to Isaiah 49 real quick to read it to you here, just so that you get a sense of what's happening. Isaiah 49, 6 and 7 reads... This is a prophecy from Isaiah, speaking of Jesus. He says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, says to one who is despised, to one abhorred by people, 
to a servant of rulers, kings will see and stand up, and princes bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Jesus himself told Paul this during his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Jesus transitioned the calling of the, the servant song to Paul to fulfill. This is our task as believers, to imitate Christ, to bring light to those places. But we're also to love our Christian brothers and sisters and have fellowship with them. And that's really the, one of the strong themes of the book of John, the first John. Koinonia is fellowship or communion in Greek. Larry threw that word at you a few weeks ago, so I wanted to test to see if any of you guys still remembered it or not. But it's a, it's a really neat word that really has a strong connotation with deep fellowship and communion in a way that uh, really has common ties and common goals in mind. So we are to have fellowship with one another. We need each other. We all need people speaking into our lives, and they need you too. That's something that we don't always think about. We are in this together. One way that we do that at Harvest is all the life groups. If you're not connected, Larry or I or anybody else would be happy to find one for you. But anyway, back to 1 John. In this passage, as you look through verses 6 through 10, there's a progression of what's happening regarding sin. First, the sinfulness is described as lying. Second, is described as self-deception. And third, the result is calling God a liar. So, God's word is clear. We're all sinners. We've all sinned. If we claim that we have not sinned, we are in fact calling God a liar. Right? Those are hard words. I'm going to read a quick passage from this commentary regarding the reality of sin from Karen Jobes. Reflecting on what it's like for us in modern society, this is what she says. There is in modern society a rationalization about sin that prevents even the word from being used beyond the walls of the church. For sin implies a moral responsibility to God. Wrong behavior is attributed to bad parenting, genetic propensities, or lack of adequate education. Or it's embraced to affirm a perceived entitlement of individuals to define moral principles for themselves. The claim that there is a God and that violation of his moral standard is sin invites harsh social disapproval in a culture that no longer believes in absolute truth and sees any such claim as a wrongful and arrogant assertion of power. Furthermore, it's increasingly difficult to to define sin in a society where what is legal is not necessarily ethical and moral by God's standards. Collectively, modern mankind has said, we have no sin and we have not sinned. really important that we as God's people reflect on this idea of our sins. And that's what the passage is pointing to us here as we look further. One of the things that will just become really apparent in our study of 1 John is that as followers of Christ, we are called to be righteous. We're called to be pure. That's what some of that imitation, that walking in Christ is all about. 1 John challenges us to deal with our sin and bring it out into the light. Verse 9 says that we need to confess our sins. 
It reads, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is scary and humbling, but necessary. There's no detour around confession. If we want to experience forgiveness and the cleansing freedom that comes with it, we need to confess our sins to one another and to God. Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses, said that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. J.I. Packer put it this way in his book titled Evangelism and Sovereignty of God. The repentance Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which he may make on their lives. Or to put it even more poignantly, in the words of Jesus himself, in the book of Luke, chapter, 20, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, it says this, Jesus speaking to the multitudes, he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For me, I know my tendency is to brush off sin and try to forget about it, sweep it under the rug, so to speak. Time may heal some things, but the guilt from unforgiven sin isn't one of them. So, as today is still today, if we have counted the cross to following Christ, repent, confess, and find forgiveness. The trouble is, there's a problem. The book of John, the gospel of John really draws this out. We loved darkness instead of light. Chapter 3 of, of John reads this, verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. We need to be honest with ourselves regarding our sin. We've got to be honest about what tempts us. If there are dark things or places in our lives, we've got to figure them out with Christ on our side. Let me remind you the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, he says, If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Usually when we read this passage, we tend to soften it by applying it to uh, some less severity. I don't think that's the, the point, though. This verse should shock us with how serious Jesus sees sin. And the thing about cutting off your hand is once you, don't, once you do it, you don't get to put it back on. It's kind of a permanent fix, isn't it? Now, before anybody loses a limb, let's think about applying this to ourselves. If going to certain places causes you to sin, don't ever go there, right? I mean, if a computer or phone causes you to sin, causes you to look at things you ought not to, throw it out. Don't mess with it. That's the severity with which he's using here. It's all or nothing. 
Get rid of the temptation and don't mess with it at all. For it's better to enter heaven without a computer or smartphone or whiskey or a hobby or job that steals all your time from your wife or kids or whatever it might be. It's better to cut it off than to take it with you to hell. Dealing with these hard things is one of the reasons that fellowship among believers is so important and such a blessing. We need each other to grow in our faith, in our Christ-likeness, to encourage one another as we seek forgiveness and work through those hard things in life. We all have them. We don't want them to control us. We need to be there for each other. Remember, the Holy Spirit is with, with us. Listen carefully. Our Holy Spirit-filled words and actions of Christ-likeness spoken and done for one another, those words and actions are Christ working and speaking through us to heal those around us. Our words spoken in truth and love through the power of the Holy Spirit bring life. We all need this tender and firm encouragement of each other. And someone else needs the same thing from us. So, in a word, this mutual building up, this is called discipleship, right? This is what Jesus spent most of his ministry doing, discipling his apostles, his followers. It is the call of the Great Commission that he has passed on to us, too, to make disciples of all nations. As Christians, this is our central burden as children of the light. As another practical and personal application regarding this, I have found that it takes effort and dedicated time spent with God and his word to reveal the places of unrepentance in my own life. The development of faith, of Christ-likeness, takes effort and time. So, if you want to regularly, if you can regularly dedicate time for this to happen, especially in the world we live in with all the distractions, it's amazing what our faith can do, how it can grow. I was talking with someone um, recently about how how easy it is to get distracted. And so one of the things that we talked about is how he likes to take trips to uh, the wilderness in Colorado to escape and to enjoy God's presence and the beauty of his creation. He was telling me about how he loves to do this because deep in the mountains and the canyons, away from work and distractions, he expressed how oftentimes God shows up while sitting along a stream God tends to work out the sins in our life and speaks clearly to us regarding his need or our need or my need for repentance. And as a result, we escape the busyness. Oftentimes we have the clarity to have God work in us in ways that we need. I love exploring and fishing so I could relate to that story. But we're all wired a little different and we're all at different places in life in different circumstances. So maybe for you it's an extended time in the art studio. Maybe it's taking a walk on your lunch break. Maybe it's just taking a break from the phone, sitting at home with your Bible without a screen to distract. The point is when we take the time to genuinely seek Christ, to seek God, study his word and pray and ask him to work on us and to bring to light the sins that are snaring us, if we ask him to transform us into his likeness, and as this, person, as this passage tells us, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
made clean. Does that sound like something you're interested in? How is this possible? Let's look on a little further. Chapter 2. First John. The first two verses read, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. Here's the main point. John desires that we would not sin. He does this in an affectionate and fatherly way by saying, my little children. He's gently seeking to encourage us to help us along. John is all too aware of the sin that he himself knows too. Just because he was an apostle doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. Remember, he ran in fear when the guards came to take Jesus He pridefully argued with the other disciples about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He was just like us. He recognizes the difficulty of sin in our own lives. But, he says, when we confess our sins, God will forgive us. And this is why. Because he loves us dearly. And he demonstrated that love by making a way for us to be with him forever. Jesus was pure and perfect He was faithful and righteous. He never sinned, which demonstrated that he was both God and man. He lived a perfect life, yet he took the punishment for our sin that we all deserved, death. And instead of us dying, he died for us. That is basically what atoning sacrifice means. Jesus has offered us life, eternal life, and it is for us to receive as we believe in him. If we put our confidence and hope in his promises, in his promises of mercy. And he is there, it says, at, in heaven, at the Father's side, advocating on our behalf. It's like he is saying, see, look at my hands and my feet. Look what I did for these people. My love for them has purchased them, and they stand forgiven because of what I did. Next week, we're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 2 again. There's um, some important theological discussions regarding the phrase for the whole world that are important to discuss. But for now, in conclusion, if you feel like you're trapped in darkness, if you feel like you're fumbling through a cave without a light, look to Jesus, for he is a light shining in the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome his light. Jesus promises that if you give your life to him, You seek repentance and ask for forgiveness. He will make you new and give you eternal life with him. Can you imagine? Someday we will be freed from sin, from pain, from sickness, from doubts and fears. We will dwell with God and one another in perfect fellowship. That is something to get excited about. And that is something worth the cost of following Jesus. So in the meantime, seek fellowship with one another. Be discipled and make disciples too. Confess your sins and find forgiveness. And as you seek to walk with Jesus, as you seek to imitate him and his Christ, 
likeness, you will begin to shine like light out into the world just like he did. So, walk in the light as he is in the light. Let's pray. Lord, we all fall short. We all wrestle with sin. Lord, forgive us, for there are so many things that we have done wrong. We need your forgiveness daily, Jesus. Thank you for for promising to clean us, to forgive us from our sin. Lord, teach us to walk in your way. Lord, show us how we can, in the individual circumstances of our life, with our families, with our coworkers, help us, Lord, demonstrate your light in this world. Lord, let us not grow dismayed with darkness, knowing that the light that you give us penetrates all darkness, and it cannot be overcome. Lord, you are so good, and we are so thankful that we get to be called your people, children of the light. In Jesus' name, amen.